This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. We stream live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, Monday through Wednesday, and our podcast shortly after at the same place. This is hell.com. Except for the past month, as I have been, let's say, deathly ill. The world broadcast premiere of every week's set of This Is Hell episodes happens Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, 89.3 FM. This Is Hell also airs abbreviated versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, twice every every week on the Chicago South Side's Lumpen Radio, and thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet, Beware which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com, live from the dining table in the dining room of my actual home, which is far better than where this was going to be done live from, which was my bed. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth, and colon exploding radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz, Producing from our studio above a pool table in a bar, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, is Alexander Jerry. A special thanks to Alex for keeping the show going over the past month. So over the past month, I have had what I would call a near, near death experience, which I'll explain in a moment. But Alex, what's new by you? Uh, when you're just getting ahead of someone talking about their near-to-death experience, I'll keep it minimal. Uh, so I'll just say I'm uh, extremely glad to be back on the show. I was nervous doing today's show. And uh, I'm glad to hear you that you're... Uh, are you vertical? Uh, Semi-vertical? Yeah, I was going to say, is perpendicular a position that you can actually have to uh, the earth when you're trying to sit up and not be in some sort of pain? Yeah. Hey, by the way, I do... Alex told me that his kid drew a picture to put on our refrigerator, I would hope. And uh, even though it's a picture of a policeman, Alex, I do want that picture. Okay. We, uh, we also made a card for you that is uh, you playing baseball with an anonymous figure. And then on the inside is a uh, Dr. Doom roasting marshmallows with the human torch. Uh, figurative drawing is uh, not his forte. So uh, it looks kind of messy, man. I also appreciate the get well soon card that you put together for me with a whole bunch of people, uh, listeners of the show, people who hang out at the bar downstairs, uh, Alex stapled together six or seven or eight different religious postcards and put them into one long accordion like postcard. And it was just really beautiful. That kind of stuff. Usually I think it's, you know, like telling somebody get well soon. It's just like a reaction to what you do. So I never thought it would have any kind of impact on me, but it really did. It made me feel a lot better. I mean, I guess when you are beat up by pain and agony that all of a sudden those kind of things actually mean something. But before we get to my personal hell, Alex, what is this week's question from hell? Uh, This week's question from hell is what you got going on inside you right now? (laughs) What you got going on inside you right now? Demons and they're all bursting out in the same few places. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio, or you can email Chuck at this is hell.com or Alex at this is hell.com. 
but we must have your ender by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following a brand new moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. That's right, we're having new moments of truth again from Jeff Dorchin, so stay tuned in for that. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering or the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive, the trucker's cap, the winter hat. You can see all of our merchandise right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, where you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Alex will have some of your answers following the upcoming interview. And uh, Lindsay, Dan, and Sebastian will read the rest throughout this week's show, so stay tuned in for that as well. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. Hey, you think Tamara could put a logo on a colon stent? Oh, yes, she could, but who would see it? Uh, That's a good point. You just know it's there. Uh, This week's Hangover Cure is listening to 1970s British singer-songwriter John Martin's album, Solid Air. Faroutmagazine.co.uk recently published an article with Jordan Poster with the headline, The 10 Best Hangover Cure Albums at the top of Potter's list is Martin's Solid Air. Potter writes... Legendary British singer-songwriter John Martin reached what I consider to be his artistic peak in 1973 with his fourth album, Solid Air. The album boasts a bounty of soft rock and folk-inspired music that comes with a wholesome and sentimental feeling perfect for nursing the wounds of a late night. The title track, Solid Air, kicks off the album with a peaceful journey through Martin's flickering acoustic guitar, yuck, and considered lyrics that were written in tribute to his friend and fellow musician Nick Drake, who sadly passed away from an overdose 18 months after the album's release. Before the album's release? After. Later, the album offers a well-balanced range of hits from Over the Hill to May You Never. Martin's unique vocals never fail to soothe. Other albums to make Potter's top 10 include Air's Moon Safari, Ladies and gentlemen, we are floating in space by spiritualized Bob Marley's Exodus, Massive Attack's album Mezzanine, Jonathan Richmond's I, Jonathan, Nick Drake's Brighter Later, though we hope that album does not have the same effect on you as it did on Nick Drake, Morchiba's Big Calm, the Brian Eno, John Cale collaboration Wrong Way Up, and Big Thief's album Dragon, New Warm Mountain, I Believe in You, rounding out Potter's top 10. That makes this week's Hangover Cure, listening to 1970s British singer-songwriter John Martin's album, Solid Air. Doesn't soft rock and folk-inspired music actually cause hangovers? I don't think that that's something that would cure my hangover. Again, this week's Hangover Cure is listening to 1970s British singer-songwriter John Martin's album, Solid Air, an artist in an album I'd never heard of before. And I'm thinking I might be better off for it. That said, I currently do not have a need for a hangover cure as since my ongoing health crisis began, I'm no longer allowed to enjoy any of my favorite vices, no beer or alcohol of any kind. Smoking weed is definitely prohibited. I even quit coffee That is until my Swedish doctor told me all Swedish doctors drink coffee, so there's nothing wrong with drinking coffee, so start drinking coffee again. So here's what's going on with me health-wise, which is frightening, and I want to give everybody a little bit of a warning. I try to be as vague as possible so it's not as 
thoroughly disgusting as it actually is. A month ago, we had scheduled anthropologist Dominic Boyer to be on the show to discuss his Noema magazine article, why we have to give up on endless economic growth. Sustainability efforts are scaling and speeding up, but the treadmill of global economic growth is still faster. So we were looking forward to having a conversation with Dominic on a truly bipartisan consensus in U.S. politics. Unfortunately, that consensus is built around our dependence on the death spiral of constant economic growth to fulfill the unfulfilled promises of freedom, liberty, and equality for all. A death spiral that is killing our planet and us poor saps who happen to live here. Instead of conducting an interview with Dominic, though, I woke up that Monday morning a month ago in agonizing pain that was just riddled throughout my stomach and seemed throughout my whole body from head to toe. A pain like none I'd ever felt in my life before. I called my doctor and he told me to get into his office immediately as myself and my family have a long history of problems with our guts. Following tests, it was determined that the digestive tract ailment from which I've been suffering from off and on for 15 years had caused what can be a truly life-threatening infection. The surgery needed to correct my problem, a procedure that the surgeon would later admit only had a 50-50 chance of success, usually means five to say seven days in the hospital for recuperation and observation. However, due to the severity of my infection, I was hospitalized for a total of 15 physically and mentally traumatic days. And anybody who's spent time in a not so great hospital with not such great equipment and not very comfortable beds or not very edible food probably knows what I'm talking about. For several of those days, I could not digest solid food in, of any matter. This meant a liquid-only diet delivered via IV. In the meanwhile, my entire digestive system suddenly shut down. So the only way I could ingest any food was through a tube that had been shoved up my nose, down my throat, to my intestine to essentially pump my stomach. The only weight I was putting on or maintaining was through the liquid IV, so-called water weight. After being released from the hospital in a surprise late night move shortly after I was told that I would be hospitalized at least for a few more days, I immediately lost a lot of that water weight. In the one week after returning home, just seven days, I lost 20 pounds going from being six feet tall and 168 pounds to weighing only 147 pounds with substantial muscle loss, essentially being nothing but skin and bone. A frightening skeletal resemblance of what I was. The combination of post-op pain and weakness stopped me from doing things like, you know, sitting up like I'm doing now, which is somewhat painful, or walking even just a few feet, throwing the inability to climb stairs and getting over to the studio to do the show has for the time being become impossible. That's why I'm doing it from the dining table 
in my dining room in my actual home. However, after post-surgery conversations with my family doctor, with my surgeon, and my in-home nurse, yes, my condition is so bad that they have assigned an in-home nurse to visit my actual home twice weekly, which is something I thought was long in the past. I never thought I would see any kind of in-home health practitioner again until I was put into a home and essentially being taken care of. But since that surgery, each one of those people has told me that I'm doing far better in my recovery than any one of them had ever expected. Of course, their expectations weren't that high considering the severity of my infection that led to sepsis, which can be deadly. To them, it was even money and that I would end up back in the hospital facing even more surgery. They figured it was 50-50. I'd be right back in there. Who knows? Maybe I'll end up back in there. We're not too sure at this point. But at this time, what all this means is if everything continues to go well, within four to six weeks from now, I could be, could be back at our regular schedule of doing all new live episodes of This Is Hell every week. We'll keep you updated as my recuperation hopefully moves forward. As we ease back into our old schedule, we'll be posting new Patreon episodes and podcasts soon, which you can subscribe, subscribe to and find at patreon.com slash thisishell. We're also going to be making an announcement about our This Is Hell Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, which is currently scheduled for July 23rd of this year. But due to my illness and depending upon my uh, recovery, that date is at best tentative. And I'm in discussions with uh, Pete Valavanis of Carrie's Lounge right now about possibly changing that date. You will be finding out first here on This Is Hell, of course. Whenever we do return, we hope, and keep this in mind, Alex, we hope our first guest back on the show will be Dominic Boyer, who was supposed to be on a month ago to discuss economic growth and how the idea is constantly sold to us through relentless advertising and a media focus on celebrity, both of which fuel our desire for luxury, luxury that amounts to nothing more than a waste of energy, resources, lives, and again, our planet. In the meantime, Alex, what will you and the other producers be doing here on This Is Hell? Uh, we're going to be playing interviews that uh, interest us. I'm going to be playing the hits of the stomach pain era. Is the my theme. Uh, every day, we're going to have a new producer in the studio playing something they appreciate, something they love from the show. Uh, so I'm going to start off with... Uh, April 29th, 2021 interview with Assistant Public Defender Adolfo Minka on prisoner uprisings in St. Louis and across the United States. And uh, Chuck, get well. I always said you're like if Cal Ripken Jr. smoked weed and got hurt all the time. Uh, still got that Iron Man status. Uh, please take care of yourself. Don't over don't overdo anything. Uh, everyone's really excited for you to come back in the studio. Take as much time as you need to get better. Hey, and I just want to mention one thing real quick about this Adolfo Minko interview that Alex is about to play. And I'm going to go sit down and listen to right now because I remember this happening. 
Uh, we've spoken with a lot of people from the Jackson Rising movement. Uh, Kali Akuno is the first one who comes to mind. And that movement is absolutely spectacular. But listen to what Adolfo has to say. He has a, <coughs> excuse me, a kind of bittersweet taste left in his mouth from his experience down there. And it's just something to remember that <clears throat> whenever we do have somebody on to talk about something that we just think is spectacular, that's wonderful, that's happening in the world, that there's real change happening, that there can be stumbling blocks along that path toward real change because we never know what's going to happen next. So having all the answers up front is nothing, can never happen when it comes to real change. And so what we try to do here on This Is Help is not give you all the answers, but hopefully ask the right questions to the right people so we can all learn and have a better understanding of what could be, hopefully, in the future. Alex, this is a great interview for the select. So thank you very much. And I, again, I really appreciate all the work that you, Sebastian, Daniel, and Lindsay are doing on the show and everybody else. Thank you so much. And uh, I will be speaking with you really soon. Hopefully, we'll be getting some Patreon podcasts back up next week. Take care, Chuck. See you. This is hell. St. Louis County, which includes St. Louis City, has been the site of violence by law enforcement for a very, very long time. That violence culminated in the Ferguson uprising, which began in August 2014. Those uprisings, three, there were, there were several, revealed to the outside world that what the people of St. Louis County have known for a very, very long time, law enforcement engages in systemic abuse of the people they are supposed to serve and protect, especially when the people they are supposed to be serving and protecting are people of color and especially African-Americans. So it should come as no surprise that if, if the police on the streets are that abusive, the jailers in what's called the St. Louis City Justice Center continue that abuse once citizens are incarcerated, jailed to do nothing but wait for a court date for who knows how long. And with the jails and courts backed up, plus the impact on trials due to the pandemic, that wait is getting longer and longer. Here to help us see behind the walls, to tell us what's happening in the St. Louis jail uprisings, criminal defense attorney Adolfo Minka wrote the Black Agenda Report article, Spirit of Emancipation Continues to Rise at the St. Louis City Justice Center. Welcome to This is Hell, Adolfo. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, thanks for having me. Hey, is there some? Let's just start with something in a real more general way. Is there something about St. Louis County, not just St. Louis City, but St. Louis County, when it comes to law enforcement, from the police on the street to the jailers in the jails? Is there something systemic throughout the whole system? that creates this abuse because whether it's Ferguson, whether it's what we've been seeing in St. Louis with uh, cops abuse of police or cops abuse of the citizenry or whether it's in jail and the abuse, is there something unique about St. Louis or do you think this is just reflective of the United States in general? Uh, I think it's the latter and not the former. I think it's, it's indicative of what you have when you have a capitalist society um, when you have people being ex, uh, exploited and degraded in their workplaces, um, and the uh, police, they are the the lap dogs of capitalists and and the state. So they are there to keep people from rebelling and to and to quell any uh, any 
uprising or any rebellion from from even trying to surface. So that's the role that the police play in St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and every other place in the United States and, and really throughout the world. I was trying to think of what makes this unique. The St. Louis City Justice Center is in downtown St. Louis. What effect, if any, does that location have on the St. Louis jail as a site of protest inside the jail and out? Because I, I couldn't help but think about, you know, uprisings at jails or prisons that are in far more remote places that are away from the eye of the public and what might be happening there. So is there something unique about these uprisings because the St. Louis Justice Center is in downtown St. Louis? Um, I don't think so. I think that the uh, the people that are incarcerated they are taking the lead um, and, and like I, like the title of the article says, the, the self-emancipation. They're, they're taking the lead in their own emancipation, um, throwing off the shackles of degradation and oppression. And uh, that's setting a great example um, for, for oppressed people um, everywhere in, in a certain sense. I don't think um, what's happening in St. Louis is unique. I worked in Jackson, Mississippi. There were uprisings in the jail there during my time uh, working and living in, in Hines County um, in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, so, so no, no, it, it's not anything special. Um, the jails and prisons throughout the United States, they are powder kegs waiting to explode at any time. Sometimes the social conditions and the uh, just the, the the fact that people are just tired and can't take anymore the conditions inside of these places they just strike the powder keg and things explode um, spontaneously you said spontaneously and I wanted to ask you about that because these protests started back in December and then there was another wave of protests in early February and now another wave of these protests in early April were there specific events that sparked each of these protests or is it not about a singular thing that happened well, based on what, what, when I talked to my clients, they were telling me that the brutality of the guards from the inside, they were they were uh, attacking people. They were spraying people in the face um, with pepper spray, just point blank range. Um, they were denying people food. They were denying people phone calls. They were denying people fresh bed linens. Um, under change of underclothes and all of these things um, sparked this kind of enough is enough kind of spirit um, within the people um, in the St. Louis City Justice Center. And things have been rumbling um, in November, December, and the administration at that time, they tried to basically shrug it up under the rug and say, well, it was some unknown disturbances. And that's when um, shortly after um, the, the, the first rebellion, the first, what I call the first major rebellion happened in February 6th when they, at the beginning of the year, they basically were trying to sweep things under the rug and say that it's an unknown disturbance, everything under control, this, this and that. But as you point out, the uh, cruelties, the abuse uh, by the people in the St. Louis uh, jail, city jail, that started even before the pandemic did, obviously. And they are protesting not just COVID-19, which we'll get to in a bit, but they're protesting the ongoing abuses that have been happening since 2019 and before. 
Is there any sense from your clients that the brutality has increased over the last year since the pandemic started? And, and more, more importantly, has the brutality increased since the murder of George Floyd and the protests that followed? Um, based on my discussions with clients about the conditions in the jail, um, and, and I just have to point out, St. Louis City Justice Center is only one jail in, in St. Louis City. There's another one called the Medium Security Institution, or it's infamously called the Workhouse, um, that, that officials, they have been promising to close for some time, I think over the past year and a half or two years. It was a whole campaign um, of people, various activists and things of that sort, um, talking about closing the workhouse and it never happened. And now the new administration of Tashar Jones, uh, she was just elected on April 6th. Now she's coming with uh, a number of promises to inmates and things of this nature. Um, so, so, but from my conversations with my client, they, was, they have told me that these abuses, um, it wasn't any special intensification, I think, um, the, the spirit to be free of oppression and the, to be free of degradation. Um, eventually, people say enough is enough, and, and that's what happened. Are, uh, are the acts of abuse that are happening within the St. Louis City Jail, are these random acts of repression or is it systemic repression? Because, I mean, both are awful, cruel, and brutal, but they are awful, cruel, and brutal in their own awful, cruel, and brutal ways. So is this random repression or is it more something that you can, this is horrible to say, but as an inmate, count on it because it's so systemic? I think it's constant. I think it's unrelenting. The, the nature of caging human beings is a violent thing to keep people in a cage, to keep people running about, kicking them about, pushing them about every day, that's a violent business. Um, and this is something that people can no longer afford to overlook. People on the outside of the prisons, um, they have to realize that this is the violent business that folks are involved in in their names. And, and really, ultimately, ordinary people, I think if if justice or, or some semblance of justice is to be done, ordinary people must take the reins of government. They must control their own um, political, social, um, and judicial affairs and economic affairs, because it's clear to me that elite professional politicians above society have failed um, ordinary people at every turn um, and they are not fit to, to be some kind of uh, torchlight of, uh, or embodiment of culture and government. Well, let's touch on those government leaders just for a moment. The St. Louis Dispatch had an editorial saying that it was sad, but the jail clearly needed an oversight board, which I found to be an odd sentence. And then U.S. Representative for Missouri's 1st Congressional District, Cori Bush, who, which includes St. Louis City, told local news that she had asked city leaders to, quote, publicly release COVID-19 testing and case rates, the use of segregation and solitary confinement, and the conditions of the jail. We are counting on the city to be more transparent. 
of the acts uh, that you say are of well-documented repression, how much of a priority is COVID-19 to activists in and outside of the jail? Does addressing COVID-19 address the most serious problems facing inmates and detainees? Well, COVID-19, it was a it was a case of life and death. So I really can't sit up here and tell you how uh, the inmates or the detainees on the inside, how they rank a thing or not. Um, but COVID-19, it was a, a serious and is not was because it's not over. It is a serious matter of life and death. I understand that some uh, detainees have begun receiving vaccinations and, th- and things of that nature. But I think having to sit um, for months on end, waiting for court dates, when they have court dates, they're not being taken over in person, and it's they they just being warehoused. Um, and the warehousing is not something new to uh, the pandemic. I mean, it's not something new to to the to the uh, pretrial detention situation. But I think the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic it exacerbated it uh, because. You had a time where where tensions are high, angst and anxiety is high. People they're wondering what's going on with their family members. Um, people are getting sick, and they they just see no end in sight of sitting and languishing in, in hellish conditions. You mentioned that McPhee Center. You described it as a, a workhouse. How is that facility different from the St. Louis Justice Center? From what we might think of as a typical jail. Well, I just think that the uh, the workhouse is a much older facility, and that and that is the argument that that people are using. They saying it's a much older facility; it shouldn't be used to house people. It's dirty, it's decrepit, it has mice and rats and roaches running around. But you go into any jail or prison, um, almost any jail or prison throughout the United States, and you see those same conditions. They they. They are perennially put jails um, under consent decrees by the federal government and things of this nature, and the same abuse and and misuse continues unabated. Nothing ever happens. So I always thought that activists were off base by saying that the workhouse just needs to be closed. Both jails needs to be closed. And now the detainees at the St. Louis City Justice Center has shown and proved that the that the MSI is no worse than the St. Louis City Justice Center. In fact, I was speaking to a client the other day, and he was telling me because recently the new mayoral administration, Tashar Jones, along with the uh, city circuit attorney, Kim Gardner, and, and the woman who you mentioned, Corey Bush, they did a tour and spoke to inmates out at the jails, both the city justice center and uh, the workhouse. And and basically did a walkthrough there and, and talking about closing the workhouse. But I think mere talks just about closing the workhouse, they don't go far enough. Um, you need both of these uh, facilities um, shut down. Both of, if, if we want to talk about, there is no such thing as a humane jail or prison. That, that's absurd. That's absurd. You cannot reform a jail or prison. Um, these these institutions are institutions of degradation and exploitation and, and barbarity. And these, the folks who are above society, who rule above society, they claim 
they are civilized. They claim that they rule over a, a civilization. If it was the case, you wouldn't have these kind of institutions in existence anymore. You also point out that St. Louis mayor, prior to Mayor Jones, lit a Cruson's uh, task force employed to investigate conditions at the jail following the first major rebellion was refused access to investigate the fifth floor where this is where you have administrative segregation, which is also referred to as the whole. That's the area you explained, you know, it was de- designated for that kind of uh, treatment of prisoners. And you add that this exposed how much a farce the body of misleaders tapped by the mayor were and that their task was to pacify, not ameliorate, with respect to conditions at the jail. So wait a second, who refused the task force access? Can the mayor of St. Louis get access to the area where you say inmates are being abused for participating in an uprising? The mayor should have been able to get it. Um, You just saw the mayor, uh, this this mayoral administration, and and I wanna be clear about something. I'm not on this bandwagon with the new mayor, mayoral administration because all she is doing right now is publicity. It's a publicity stunt to ensure that more uprisings don't happen. She's making promises to detainees at these jails saying that she's going to get them home and she doesn't even have the authority to get anybody home. She's in the executive branch. She doesn't deal with who gets detained or or who goes home. So she's giving people false hope as far as I'm concerned in an effort to quell the self-emancipating spirit of the detainees that is present and and on the surface um, in these jails. She's trying to avert further rebellion um, in the city of St. Louis. And these people, they use their social identity as black people to, to legitimate their rule above society and say, well, because I'm a black woman or because um, I come from a background where some of my family members have faced victimization, then I understand where you coming from and you should trust me. But these people, they work at the behest of capital and the state. Um, Tashara Jones, her campaign raised uh, overwhelming funds over the over her opposition. That was a nod from capital and the state that she was all right and that she was going to do a good job and keep things in order. And that's what what is on on the table today, all throughout the United States, where you see these black mayors um, of cities, they talking about they're the people's mayor and they're going to make their cities the most radical cities on the planet and things like this. But you still have police murder. You still have brutality in jails. You still have Black-led police states that's still conquering and killing ordinary Black and poor people. You write that Circuit Attorney Gardner's office has yet to find any criminality among among the Black misleaders who orchestrate the abuse of inmates from their administrative posts. How do administrators orchestrate abuse in the St. Louis City Jail? Well, they preside over it. They know that the degradation is going on. Like I pointed out um, in the article, it was a woman, she was a low, a low level uh, correction officer or whatever. I don't know exactly the title, but she worked as a jailer um, in the St. Louis City Justice Center. She was indicted by the uh, circuit attorney Gardner's office 
for facilitating um, abuse by other guards of another, I mean, by, by detainees on another detainee, which resulted in his jaw being broken. This woman's name was Demiria Thomas, I believe. Um, but she is just, she is just low hanging fruit. At the very top of this thing is, is violence and degradation. So the, so the violence and degradation at the upper echelons of the city government, where the, where the, where the top officials are, it begets the violence that you see in the jails and on the streets and everything else, where you have people languishing um, under unemployment, under impoverishment conditions. Um, this is violence. When people don't have food to eat, when people don't have the, the proper housing and things of that nature, these, these are, uh, these are, this is violence. So the violence from above society begets the violence that we see. But the, this is not the violence that these people ever want to talk about. You're right that uh, Circuit Attorney Gardner's anti-racism is counterfeit and is primarily based on, as you're pointing out with Mary Jones, her social identity as a black woman, not her deeds. So what happens at OFO, in your opinion, to anti-racism more generally when it is defined by some through identity and not deeds? What impact can that have on anti-racism more generally? It's an anti-racism that holds hands with the state as the ordinary people at the bottom of society are brutalized. It's a totalitarianism. That's what it is. These people use their identity to tell ordinary people that I am the embodiment of your freedom and dignity and justice. When that's not the case, they preside over the police state. They preside over the carceral state. And then because these people are black, you have activists who um, align with these rulers and oppressing people and legitimating their rule above society. That's the issue. That is the mode of rule today that must be addressed. These people talk about a white racial state as more and more black people are elected to public office above society and perpetuate the same forms of degradation and exploitation. These people are not anti-capitalist. They are not anti the police. They talking about reforming the police. They talking about defunding the police. They not talking about abolishing the police. They talking about redistributing. We don't need rulers to distribute wealth. Ordinary people, we create the wealth. We create the housing. We grow the food. So we don't need any middleman. We don't need these rulers to redistribute these things. We need to arrive on our own authority and establish our own self-government and abolish the uh, governments that claim to embody our freedom. For years and years, you know this, that more we've been told more racial and ethnic and gender diversity, you know, that's going to fix everything. If we just had more elected representatives with more racial and ethnic diversity and gender diversity, everything will be fixed. Have we simply yet to elect enough black government leaders to achieve an end of the white racial state? Well, the first thing is the white racial state has been abolished in most places. Now, if you go somewhere like Mississippi or Georgia or Alabama and some obscure counties, even in some uh, northern uh, states, um, where you go to some kind of rural places where the white racial state is still in place, 
But the white racial state is still not in place in New Orleans. The white racial state is not in place in Jackson, Mississippi. The white racial state is not in place in Atlanta, Georgia. The white racial state is not in place in Buffalo, New York. The white racial state is not in place in Houston, Texas, where all of these places that have elected black mayors, black uh, district attorneys, circuit attorneys, prosecuting attorneys, where they have uh, predominantly um, uh, black county boards. Where, so so what's, the, what's the talk about a white racial state? People like Kim going to open up their mouth and talk about a new Jim Crow. It ain't no new Jim Crow. These people want to say that it's new Jim Crow. That implies that the mass incarceration is being done by white people when it's black people in the office that are mass incarcerating. When you go to St. Louis City Justice Center or MSI, you see the vast majority of those people are black and you ask who put them there. It's Kim Gardner's office that put them there. It wasn't somebody white that did that. So what are people talking about? That needs to be the discussion. These are the questions that have to be raised today. You write that the self-emancipating activity of detainees has done more in two months to expose the bankruptcy of the municipal government than phony prison reform activists who speak of a new Jim Crow have done in a decade. Why do you believe these jail uprisings have done more for prison reform than talk of the new Jim Crow? It has done more because before these people rose up, wasn't any nobody was studying what was going on at the jail except those people who who loved ones are in jail or people like me who work closely and 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 uh, are serious about what is happening to people in jails and prisons in the United States. Otherwise, people weren't paying attention. Lighter cruising. Um, the previous mayor, she wasn't talking about the conditions in the jail. The conditions were the same, though. Nobody was talking about it. It is these detainees that put the discussion on the table. It is because these detainees that Tashar Jones, Corey Bush, and Kim Gardner are running out there trying to quell or, or suppress any more rebellion going on at the jail because they know that continued rebellion places their power in jeopardy. It caused their legitimacy into question. It caused the lie that because black people rule above society, that equals progress for the most oppressed. That puts that into question. And they cannot have that. So they're going to do what is necessary to suppress further rebellion, just like what we saw um, this past summer um, with the George Floyd rebellion. These people say all kind of stuff. Um, trying to quell the various rebellion in various cities across the United States. They started talking about defund the police, which was something that was created out of the out of the left block of capital or the cultural apparatus of the Democratic Party. That was not something that came up organically. This is something that was that was grabbed and 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 that was co-opted by the Democratic Party. A talk about redistribution. That's not talking about bringing forth a uh, real and substantive change to the situation, these people are not going to do that because they work at behest of, the, of capital in the state. But they will they will tell, they will put forth, they will make projections as if they're going to do something when, in order to... Uh, th- no, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I, the one example that I can point to 
is the whole uh the Chauvin verdict or whatever. They had to, they had to convict that man. They knew that more cities would burn. They knew that more private property would burn. They know that they knew that capital uh would be placed in jeopardy if that man walked away free. So they always have to have a scape, scapegoat at a certain point in time, but the permanent slaughter still continues. Even during the trial, black people and, 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 and white people and everybody else continue to be brutalized and killed by the police state. That didn't stop. Um, Chauvin, Derek Chauvin going to prison, that's just one person. The whole system should be condemned. The whole system got to go. And there can be no advising the state. The state, as it currently stands, it got to go. It, it, it must go. Ordinary people have to arrive on their own authority and establish their own self-government and hold the reins of society if we are going to have um, a new society based on the principles of mutual aid and cooperation and not greed and exploitation. You write that well before the pandemic, detainees here have been warehoused for years at a time as they await trial. St. Louis Public Radio reported the day following the April 4th uprising, a group of inmates at the Justice Center in downtown St. Louis left their cells and sparked an uprising to draw attention to how long prisoners are there awaiting trial. Throughout the disturbance, inmates chanted, we need help. And we want court dates. No one was injured, a spokesperson for Mayor Krusen said. So how much of that lack of court dates is due to the pandemic? And how much is this an issue prior to the pandemic? Did the pandemic just make it worse, backlog the, the uh, court dates even worse? Yes, the pandemic exacerbated the situation. Um, but like I stated before, um, you had people waiting for years on end, especially on serious cases like like murder cases and, and some higher level of assaults and other uh, so-called violent offenses. Um, people had to wait in jail. Some of this was because of the incompetence and ineptness of, of uh, the prosecutors. They not getting uh, defendants. Um, the, the necessary evidence that they need before they can go to trial. Um, so, so it's a number of factors that play into this, but, but to answer your question directly, yes, the pandemic exacerbated, but, but the problem existed well before the pandemic. You say this is incompetence by prosecutors to give evidence to those who are going to be facing trial or court dates. Do you think that's purposeful, intentional incompetence? Well, sometimes it is. Sometimes we know that prosecutors uh, throughout the United States, we've seen cases that was undertaken by the Innocence Project and other uh, initiatives. They come back 20 years, 30 years after somebody has served these years in prison, been away from their family, and they find out that a prosecutor, they have hidden uh, key evidence that would have exonerated them. Um, and many times these people are never disbarred. They never go to jail. But you have somebody who have had their lives snatched away. They have been away from their families. They have been away from their children. Um, so th this is commonplace because as much as these people want to talk about progressive prosecutors, 
that, that's that's an oxymoron. And, and and we have to understand that progressive means absolutely nothing. Being a progressive doesn't mean anything. That means that a progressive is nothing but somebody who's trying to recognize uh, reconcile ordinary people with the permanent slaughter. They're trying to convince ordinary people that this system can self-correct when we've seen year after year, decade after decade, that the same thing continues to go on. How far could ending cash bail go toward ending the problem that is happening right now with detainees awaiting trial in St. Louis Justice Center? Well, if you look around the country, ending cash bail that doesn't stop people from being held. These people, they still have another safety valve or uh, yeah, a safety valve to go to um, because they can just say, well, we find that these people are a danger to the community or they are flight risk and people can be held on that basis. So they can just be denied bond altogether. And people are denied bond altogether all the time on serious cases, even when it's a case of clear self-defense, even when it's a case of when people cannot be identified as the person based on the evidence, even when these people don't have the evidence to sustain charges, people still continue to languish in jail because the officials, they don't have the courage to dismiss a case and they just want to let it play out. They don't want to step on the circuit attorney's toes or whatever the case may be when they claim that it's a system of justice. So, uh, to you, what explains why prosecutors are seemingly not concerned about criminal abuse being committed in jails and prisons? Why do prosecutors turn a blind eye to those committing criminal acts against inmates and detainees? Why is that crime relatively ignored? Because these people know that this is the cost of doing business, just like people turn a blind eye to all of these people being killed in the street by the police. They pay some money and then it's a get get out of jail free card. We'll pay the family off. Uh, we'll pay them some kind of civil settlement. The same thing goes on in jail. People sue for abuses that happen in jail. It's the cost of doing business. They know the business that they're in, and they know that they can't they can't go too far. Every once in a while, they will prosecute uh, this person or that person, but it's always a low level person, as we pointed out earlier. Um, um, uh, as we pointed out earlier with the woman Demuria uh, Thomas in the uh, St. Louis City Justice Center. So these people, like Malcolm said, these people are criminal, but, but he was talking about white people. I'm not talking just about white people. I'm talking about whoever rules above society and heat degradation and exploitation on the heads of ordinary people, whether they be blue, black, red, or brown. And that's another thing about mass incarceration. These people open up their mouth and they always say black and brown people being mass incarcerated. You got millions of white people in jail and prisons today throughout here. And these people won't open up their mouth. I guess they think that all white people are criminals too. Poor white people, because that's those are the ones that are in jails and prisons. The poor white people, along with black and brown people who are poor and exploited and degraded. So this whole thing is a farce, man. And it has to be uncovered. People have to pull the cover back off of this thing. And it needs to be exposed. And that's what that's why I write 
we trying to expose certain things and we have to oppose the rulers above society no matter what their identity is. Well, let's talk about what that opposition might look like, because you write many organizations, institutions, and personalities claim to represent justice. Most are compensated to play charades that they are guardians of ordinary people as they contain our better instincts. When the prisoners move under great adversity, under grave consequences that imperial mayors, prosecutors, and judges are not ever are not even permitted to discover, we are reminded what is required as they lay more eggs. The further breaking up of the old world so we can arrive at a new beginning. That is what the Easter season truly promises. What would breaking up the old world look like to you when it comes to incarceration? Well, the first thing that has to be pointed out, it goes beyond incarceration. We're talking about a new society, period, where ordinary people um, will establish um, what public safety and security looks like not some elite representatives who who work at the behest of capital and the state apparatus. But with respect, look, today it's so widespread that almost everywhere you point out, you have people who are literally, I wanna, I'm not just being hyperbolic, hyperbolic here when I say this. You have so many people who are activists for the state who pretend that they are for some kind of freedom struggle. You have mayors talking about, like I said before, in Jackson, Mississippi, where I was, and in other places, they talking about a radical city. They talking about capitalism and all of these kind of things. And they all have activists around them who claim to be for justice and freedom of ordinary people. But all of these people prop up the legitimacy of these various governments who preside over the exploitation and degradation of the masses of people. So that's the first thing that has to be attacked. You have to have uh, people who are really independent of the state address these issues. You can't have people that operate inside the cultural apparatus of the Democratic Party, taking money from the Rockefeller, the MacArthur um, Foundation, um, and these other foundations like many of these activists are, like the Black Lives Matter movement. That's a prime example. Now certain things are coming out about that, where, where, these, where they are saying that these people who were at the highest echelons of the Black Lives Matter movement, they getting they're getting millions of dollars. They're getting all kind of movie and art deals and book deals. They're being flown around the country. If you are real anti-imperialist, if you are really for the freedom and justice for people, such people don't get flown around. They don't get paid millions of dollars to do that. People get buried. People get killed behind this kind of stuff if they're serious about it. But I'm not saying people always are killed. That's, that's not the case either. But I'm making a point that these activists who operate inside and outside of the Democratic Party are playing around. They are not serious about these issues. And it's like when I brought up the point where, like when I was in Mississippi, they had this uh, 
this prison reform outfit that talked about um reforming they re reforming the uh reforming parchment penitentiary the infamous parchment penitentiary but at the same time that uprisings and, and and things were happening in parchment they were happening at other jails and prisons and another thing these people didn't address these issues while a black uh, Mississippi Departments of Corrections uh, officer was in. They waited to after she stepped aside and and uh, scores of people had been killed under her watch. But these black activists never addressed this woman. She they never said anything about the degradation and, and outright brutality and murder that was happening under her watch. But then they go and talk about parchment prison when the whole thing is rotten. They want to play musical chairs. They want to play musical jail cells. Not this jail cell over here. This one is more humane. It's total nonsense. And like I said, it's a charade. It's a farce. And it's really disrespectful to people's intelligence who can see and look and point out these things. Adolfo, first, I want to tell you, I've really enjoyed our conversation because it's been very informative and very enlightening. And we were supposed to end probably 10 minutes ago, and I couldn't stop asking questions because this has just been a fascinating conversation. I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with criminal defense attorney Adolfo Minka, who wrote the Black Agenda Report article, Spirit of Self-Emancipation, continues to rise at the St. Louis City Justice Center. Adolfo is pub assistant public defender in St. Louis City. One last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write the inmates' continued desire to expose the barbarism masquerading as civilization that is the carceral state evinces that they have been resurrected. Indeed, like Christ on the third day, they have risen. Barbarism masquerading as civilization. The quote that's been likely cited the most on our show since we started back in 1996 when it comes to the carceral state is Dostoevsky's famous adage, the degree of civilization in the society can be judged by entering its uh, prisons. What degree of civilization is there within the walls of U.S. prisons and jails? And what degree of civilization is there outside prisons surrounding it past those walls what what does it and what does it say about our civilization when it takes a pandemic to recognize carceral abuse sure this is the one thing that me and my comrades have been talking about this whole distinction between inside and outside of prison is total nonsense and it got to be abolished people got to stop playing around with this kind of thing you got people inside the prisons who complain about not having clean water, not having access to water. And in the cities that I've lived in and been in, you have people on the outside talking about sewage in their front yard. They talking about water problems. They talking about lead in water and all of these kind of things. You got people being killed inside the jail. And then when you walk outside the jail, you got police who beat, brutalize, conquer and kill uh, ordinary people at the drop of a hat. So when you look at the conditions inside the jail or you look at the conditions outside the jail, they mirror one another. So the question, the ball is in both sides court. The question is what, what is going to happen? What are people going to, what are people going to do? Are they gonna arrive on their own authority? 
or they're going or, or are they going to continue to give up their authority to rulers who claim to be the embodiment of their freedom and uh, some kind of democracy. I think they should do the former and not the latter. And that's that's the point that, that I continue to raise and continue to agitate and continue to put forward. And I will continue to do so. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. This has been just a fascinating conversation, and you can count on the fact that we'll be annoying you in email in the future to have you back on the show, Adolfo. I really appreciate you being on. We have been speaking with criminal defense attorney Adolfo Minka, who wrote the Black Agenda Report article, Spirit of Self-Emancipation Continues to Rise at the St. Louis City Justice Center. And again, I want to thank the great folks over at Black Agenda Report who have been supporting and uh, very, very uh, big contributors to our show since its very beginning. So thank you very much for being back on the sh- or being on the show, Adolfo. Thank you all. Uh, where's my music? Hold on. Okay. There we go. Damn. That was my favorite interview, hands down, of the last few years. This is hell at its best. You just heard public defender Adolfo Minka talking about the article, Spirit of Self-Emancipation Continues to Rise the St. Louis City Justice Center. That was for Black Agenda Report. Hi, producer Alex here. Welcome back. Uh, we're live in the studio playing Staff Picks Monday through Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. You'll hear shows with Sebastian, Lindsay, Dan, Richard, and myself picking favorites, plus new rotten history, new questions from hell, and new moments of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Uh, speaking of rotten history, here's rotten history for the week of Monday, April 11th, 2022. On April 13th, 1919, that is 103 years ago this week, at the city of Amritsar in the province of Punjab in British-ruled India, crowds of pilgrims came from surrounding towns and villages to celebrate the festival of Vaisakhi at the Golden Temple, the most important holy site in the Sikh religion. But after months of uprising and demonstrations in Punjab and elsewhere, Colonel Reginald Dwyer, the chief British military officer in the area, had just issued a prohibition against large assemblies. The ban was poorly publicized, and most of the 10,000 pilgrims who gathered in the large garden near the Golden Temple were unaware of it. Uh, They were there to celebrate the local religious festival and to hear speakers protest the recent arrest of two local political leaders. The garden was surrounded by walls on all sides, with only a few narrow exits. And in the midst of this activity, Colonel Dyer entered the garden accompanied by 50 rifle-bearing troops, along with some other soldiers who blocked the garden exits. Without issuing any warning for the unarmed crowd to disperse, Dyer ordered his troops to fire. Uh, For almost 10 full minutes, the soldiers continuously mowed down hundreds of screaming men, women, and children as they tried in vain to escape from the walled garden. In desperation, more than 100 people climbed into an open well, only to drown. Others were trampled to death in stampedes along the narrow exits. The soldiers kept firing until their ammunition was gone, killing as many as 1,500 people. The British tried to suppress news of the massacre, and it took months for the outside world to learn of it. After an inquiry, Colonel Dyer received a slap on the wrist. He was relieved of his India duty and denied a promotion. Some British politicians denounced his actions, while others defended him. He provoked the Nobel laureate, Rajanathan Tagore to renounce his British knighthood and also caused the political leader Mohandas Gandhi to drop his demand for Indian home rule and instead push for full independence from Britain. 21 years later, in 1940, an eyewitness to the Amritsar massacre would take revenge by assassinating the former British Lieutenant Governor of Punjab. 
And to this day, despite various wreath layings and carefully worded expressions of regret, the British have yet to offer a full formal apology. On April 14th, 1930, that is 92 years ago this week, the Russian poet Vladimir Mayakovsky died of an apparently self-inflicted gunshot wound in his Moscow apartment at the age of 36. Mayakovsky had begun writing poetry in his teens while serving a jail sentence for subversive political activity. Later, he became a leader in the Russian futurist art movement and a prominent supporter of the Bolshevik Revolution. His heroic and satirical verse was prominent in the flowering of the early Soviet avant-garde, and he was also popular as a playwright, screenwriter, and actor. But in the late 1920s, an unlucky love life, combined with the tightening of Stalinist orthodoxy, began to close in on him. Some mystery still surrounds Mayakovsky's death. Not all historians are convinced that it was really a suicide. And when Stalin showered him with posthumous praise, co-opting his legacy to call him the greatest of all Soviet poets, it caused a backlash, which had become known as Mayakovsky's second death. His work fell out of favor among poets and academics, and he was unjustly ignored for years. And finally, oh, sorry, not finally, penultimately, on April 16th, 1457 BCE, so that is 3,479 years ago this week, in the earliest military battle that modern historians view as being reliably documented, Egyptian armies and a coalition of Canaanite forces faced off on the Canaanite city of Megiddo, in which is now northern Israel. Pharaoh Thutmose III led some 10 to 20,000 chariots and infantry against a roughly equal-sized force led by the king of Kadesh. Thutmose outmaneuvered the Canaanites and his forces entered the walled city and plundered it, laying siege to the city for seven months until the Canaanites surrendered. Thutmose's armies later continued through Syria and Mesopotamia, pillaging towns, burning crops, taking prisoners. The establishment of Egyptian dominance over Palestine was a key episode in Thutmose's expansion of the Egyptian empire to its greatest geographical extent, stretching from what is now Syria all the way south to what is now Sudan. And finally, on April 16th, 1847, that's 175 years ago this week, a junior British army officer shot a minor chief of the Waganui people of the indigenous Maori of New Zealand. The incident, the incident triggered a series of clashes between Maori warriors and British forces that became known as the Waganui Campaign, which hinged mainly on the disputed legality of sales of Maori land to British settlers. The fighting extended into July, and resulted in several deaths on both sides, but the Waganui campaign would only be the beginning of the larger New Zealand Wars, which would drag on for another 25 years as Maori tribes across New Zealand tried to form a united government to defend their lands against European colonists. The wars would claim the lives of more than 2,000 Maori people and some 800 British and colonial troops. They would end with the colonial confiscation of more than 6,000 square miles of Maori land. That's Rotten History. This is Hell, producer Alex. Thanks for sticking with us as Chuck's had his health emergencies. He's back. Well, he's, he's on his back. He's horizontal. We're waiting to get back to vertical. If you have an interview that you want us to revisit, something that meant a lot to you as a listener, this is Hell, uh, please let me know and we'll get it on the air for you. Stay tuned. We're back at it Monday through Thursday, 10 o'clock. We miss everybody. Uh, I know Chuck is very thankful for all the support that we've had from everyone who's gotten in touch. If you're still trying to get in touch with him, Chuck at thisishell.com or find him on Facebook. And if Chuck, if you were listening to this, uh, we are glad 
that you're hanging in there and I can't wait for you to get back to the show. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, Lindsay is going to be in studio tomorrow. That's Tuesday. Followed by Dan H. on Wednesday and Sebastian on Thursday. New moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Uh, Today's Rotten History was from Ronaldo Magaldi. All right, everyone. uh, See you soon. Bye. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor.